0: Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi everyone, welcome to Unchained, a podcast engineered by factor recording and produced by me, your host, Laura Shin, a Forbes contributor covering cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Thanks for tuning in. I've been getting some really helpful feedback on Unchained. If you haven't already, please send me your thoughts on what I could do better with the show. It's anonymous, so feel free to say what you really think could be improved go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained or find the link in the show description of this episode. Again, that's surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained. I've been to some blockchain conferences recently and, and have gotten some really nice comments from you listeners, so thank you. But I've also realized a lot of people in the community still don't know about Unchained. Help get the word out about the show by sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or with friends and colleagues. And if you have a chance, give the show a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or iHeart. Big thanks to our sponsor, OnRamp. Branding isn't just a logo. Your brand is the essence of who you are and what you offer your customers. OnRamp, which has done great websites for some blockchain companies, is a full-service creative and design agency that provides its clients with concise and exceptionally designed branding, websites, and marketing materials. Connect with your audience. Expand your business. Check out thinkonramp.com. My guest today is Vinny Lingam, four-time entrepreneur, the founder and CEO of blockchain identity startup Civic a shark on South Africa's Shark Tank, and a Bitcoin Foundation board member. And Vinny's also been nicknamed the Bitcoin Oracle for his uncannily accurate Bitcoin price predictions. Welcome, Vinny.
1: Thank you, Laura. Good to be on the show.
0: So heads up, everyone, that we are on the 44th floor of a hotel, the Marriott Marquis, where consensus was held. Um, And despite our um, kind of like perch over the city, you might occasionally hear sirens in the episode just want to warn you. So, Vinny, you made a number of big announcements here at ConsenSys, but let's start with the basics. What does Civic do?
1: Thanks, Laura. So, Civic is a blockchain based identity platform. What that really means is that we've used the blockchain to reimagine how identity would work in the real world. And we're doing it by giving people the ability to store their personal information, their ID information, and any. Anything really around personal data, health records, etc., on their mobile device, secured by um, the biometric tools like Touch ID that's on the mobile device, and no one else uh, gets to see their information unless they explicitly give permission for it. And so that means that information is not stored on CIVIC servers. It's a fully decentralized model. Everyone in the world could be storing their personal information on their devices, and we would have none of it. So we can't get hacked, and you can't lose your information through CIVIC because we don't store any of that data. And we're doing that because we think it's important that people have control of their information and then can use it to gain access to places where they need to go. So potentially through an airport or um, going online logging into a website, uh, replacing two-factor authentication, etc. So we see a, a ton of use cases. What we've done is we've just launched our product, which allows you to log into websites using your, your phone, scanning your QR code, passwordless entry, and, and ultra secure.
0: So walk me through what that looks like. Like if you are going to an airport and you need to prove who you are, how does that work?
1: Sure. So okay. that's kind of the long-term dream we have is that because the ID information in your phone is so secure and locked down that, you know, governments around the world will start accepting civic IDs and civic uh, accounts in the future. Um, we're not there yet. We've just launched. And so right now we're focusing on really the cryptocurrency community, so the web developers, uh, the cryptocurrency sites, and exchanges where instead of having to do KYC which is know your customer uh, and where you prov- provide exchanges with your passport your driver's license and all these you know, if all this information about them really uh, multiple times every time you open up an account we're trying to make it simple so that you do it once information is verified digitally signed certified on, on your device um, private keys are placed in the device and there's a blockchain uh, there's a hash on the blockchain on the Bitcoin blockchain which which confirms that that the owner of the key is the owner of the information. So when you go to the next site to sign up, if you've you've already provided information once, um, they can trust that the information hasn't been changed and therefore you can log in and you can sign up and not have to go through uh, a full KYC again. So it's really more of a reusable KYC model But it also means you can just log into websites without a username and password, and by having the app and and, and authenticating through the app, you could gain access. And The good thing about that is because the sites that integrate with us are not storing a username and password for you, or an email address and password, if they get hacked, um, the hacker can't use that information elsewhere to gain access to other accounts.
0: One thing was, so you were talking about KYC, which is know your customer. Mm -hmm. So what information um, is it that consumers need to give when they're signing up for um, Civic?
1: So when you sign for Civic, you can. there are multiple levels of accounts. The basic account really is just email and phone number. Um, and that's not a verified account. That's just a basic Civic account. Um, that also means that when you go somewhere, people don't have to send you an email where you have to type in the code or click the link. They don't have to send you a text message you type in the code again. Um, it's already done. So the website who receives the, the, that information from you knows that civic is verified that that 's your email that's your phone number and uh if, as long as you're willing to give that information to them they don 't have to have you re verify it
0: wait I, so that 's like if you travel and you want to check your your bank um, balance or something at the moment, then your bank knows that
1: it's still you or with Civic, there's two types of accounts. You have a basic account where we only verify the email address and the phone number, and then you have a verified account where we verify your email address, your phone number, your address, your first name, middle name, last name, um, your social security number, and really any other information that the website may need about you. And so, verified accounts are a very high level of trust, and and basic accounts have got some degree of trust because that's just an email and a phone number, um, but. In both cases, when you're logging into a website, they can choose what information they want from you and what level of trust that they really want from Civic to verify if you are who you say you are.
0: So which types of accounts would I use just like the basic account to log in with? Mm -hmm. And then which type of accounts would I use the verified
1: account with? So if you're applying for a bank account, you would probably need a verified account because no bank is just going to accept a phone number and email address. They want to know that your your first name last name matches your email address matches your your physical address um, social security number etc so if we can provide them with that information as being already verified it makes it a lot cheaper and easier for them to open the account for you versus having to go through an entire process where you have to submit driver's license potentially and passport information and that's what you have to do right now for exchanges and so we're trying to make it a lot more easy and more secure to do that
0: and then when would I use the, um, the basic account with just the email address and phone number?
1: So for basic accounts, if you are signing up for a social network website or something, you know, that doesn't really require a high degree of, of knowledge, you know, creating an account on a forum, etc. they just really maybe even want just your email address. And the best part about the basic accounts is they can also be used for something called um, private logins. And that means that they the site accepting a private login will take no information from you at all. So you can sign up for an app or website, give them nothing except a unique token mm. so that they'll remember you when you come back, but they don't know your email or your phone number, and you can test the service out. And if they decide in the future, well, you know, after seven day of a free trial maybe, we now need to know your email address or phone number, they can then request it from you at that point, and then you can decide whether you want to disclose the information. So, I mean, I think... I'm one of many people who have a problem with going to these sites and apps and having to sign up and give all my information just to check out an app. And so we think that that the Civic Protocol makes it really easy for people to just try things out. And if they don't like it, they can, you know, they can leave, and and the site can't contact them has no information.
0: So at the moment of onboarding, how does Civic know that I'm really who I am? Like, what if I'm a fraudster trying to impersonate, um, you know, the, my target?
1: Right. So. So in terms of onboarding, we've been doing this for a while. So last year, we launched an identity theft protection product, um, which allows us to really verify your identity. And we've been testing this and a lot of success in making sure that we can verify people's information. So yes, it's entirely possible someone who can fake being you and they can come into your information, um, but they'd have to... You don't have to have access to your email, most likely, and your phone number, um, They have to do some records matching, we, we send a postcard to your house to make sure that you actually live with that address, it's got to match um, public records. So we go through quite an extensive verification process, um, and we adapt that process based upon country we go into um, and, and public record availability, but by and large, the process we go through is the same process that uh, banks and, and exchanges go through already. So all we're doing is we're making sure that to a high degree we can we can validate that you are who you say you are. And it may not be 100%, but it's going to be a lot better than a light touch background check.
0: What types of partners do you envision and like, how will you get them to uh, adopt CIVIC?
1: So that's one of the reasons why we're doing a token sale. We felt that um, CIVIC needs to be something which is a community-based movement. And we wanted to create a a platform where people can really get involved and, and help us you know, change the world and make sure data privacy and security and it's really it's a fundamental tenet of I think you know the, the cryptography world and and this this, this freedom of information and, and this, this this knowledge of how unsecure our data is everywhere and so by structuring the token sale in such a way where you can get tokens as part of the network so we're issuing a billion tokens, they'll be used for smart contracting and data transfers etc and, and many other things but in order to get tokens you can do two things you can buy them in the token sale or you can earn them so as a developer if you choose to integrate Civic you will be receiving tokens for driving um, traffic getting people on board and and depends on the partnership we have you will earn free tokens um, and be part of the network and and obviously we only have a fixed number of tokens so it's going to go to the people early on who help us build the network and get to scale and that's one of the best reasons I I think we've thought about in terms of reasons for why a token sale makes sense. How do you, how do you involve the community? So Civic will own one third of the tokens and two thirds will be sitting in the community and people can choose to buy or earn or both.
0: And so I understand how you're going to use the tokens to build the network, but then like once the network's kind of like sufficiently large enough, what will the tokens have a function then?
1: Well, the tokens have a function effectively from day one. Um, when, you know, once we launched the, the, the marketplace, we just, the tokens act as a smart contracting system. So right now, Civic is the only ID verification service in the in the network, so to speak. So we're we're the ones doing the verification. But the plan and the partnerships we're busy forging right now are for large institutions to come in. They may have 10, 20 million customers and give their customers their data and allow that, that customer to use it on other websites through the Civic network. And those websites who then receive the data can validate it that it was validated by the, let's, let's say for example, a bank. If a bank gave you personal information on the app or through Civic said, look, you can now use this, Laura, to log into a website or to open up a, a securities account or to you know, apply for medical insurance, whatever it is. You could have a situation where the, the, the recipient, so let's say for example, it's a, a different financial institution, says, well, we trust this bank and instead of us doing a whole process on you and spending 10, $20, They're asking for a $1 fee or a $0.50 fee. We're going to pay them that $1 fee, and we're going to let you open the account instantly because the the keys match, your information matches. We're we're, we're pretty certain that that's you.
0: So then you basically have both of these banks as your partner. Right. And um, you are kind of like uh, the facilitator of ensuring that the information from the first bank is... Is all kosher sure. in that,
1: and
0: that okay, it matches
1: what the second bank would, would require exactly. And so, so, and you take it to the next level. I mean, when you have multiple institutions in this platform, you can drive the costs of, of, of KYC and ID verification right down. I mean, right now, the, the world's spending tens of billions of dollars on verifying the same people over and over and over. And if we make it reusable, it can be a lot more simpler, easier, faster, and more secure.
0: And then to go back to how you were saying that tokens can be used in smart contracts, mm-hmm. what's an example of what that would look like?
1: So let's say for example. Your profile may have, um, it's called attestations. So it may have three companies. One company would say, one bank would say, this is Laura and we verified the social security number. You may have a health record. You may have um, two or three other bits of information. Who knows? And when you do a transaction with another uh, organization and they need to get some of this information from you, um, there needs to be a you know a way of settling for the the, setting the smart the smart contract would ensure that the person who verified the information gets paid for verifying the information, oh, I see. and it may have to be split between multiple parties, and they have different uh, they're in different countries, so they be different currencies and etc. So uh, and then the contract has to execute so in a way that's private because you don't want necessarily the one party to know. Uh, where your attestations came from, because there's a privacy issue there. So the smart contracting system is basically ensuring that when a transaction happens, that the the tokens get split up between the right parties. There's a transaction happens, the data is handed over, it's verified, it's checked, and it's all done and, and secure. And the settlement of tokens happens on both ends.
0: What's interesting about what you're saying is that in this case, um, these are like B two B payments essentially,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, but your token sale is going to be to the crowd. So at what you know what what are the ways in which the tokens kind of move between consumers and and the and the, the business layer. Where sure. is the B2C aspect?
1: So the B2C aspect for consumers is there'll be services that Civic will provide, so um, background checks, maybe credit reports. Uh, we do ID, verifi- ID verification protection services right now, and you could pay for those services using these tokens. We would accept these tokens as a way of, of paying for services that we're offering um, the consumers on our network as well. But it's largely focused on the B2B. It's largely focused on developers because think about it this way. If you have tokens which um, operate in the network and we write smart contracts which you want to execute and you want to lower your KYC costs, you find other companies that are willing to accept these tokens and and execute the smart contracts with them on the network using the, using the tokens.
0: So you're hoping a lot of developers buy in your ICO?
1: Well, they don't have to buy. They just need to, to develop on our platform and integrate with Civic and integrate with our network.
0: And then the tokens—they
1: don't necessarily need to own them themselves. No, so so part of the early adoption cycle is getting, especially the crypto community, developers behind us and integrating and help contributing to building Civic and uh, building the network. Um, and by doing that, we will allocate tokens to them. Okay. So that part of the you know one third, one third, one third is a third of the tokens are going to be given away for partners who come on and strengthen the network by bringing users on board. By bringing integrations, ways of transferring data, et cetera. So, yeah, if we had partners coming on board that had millions of users and wanted to reduce their KYC costs and their verification costs, that would add a tremendous amount of value to the network. So, we would give them a, you know, a grant of tokens based on about the volume they're going to build in the network. And so, that's how we strengthen the network. So, think about strategic partnerships that would build the network, would earn tokens as well.
0: Oh, interesting. But that's, that's really interesting to, to give away tokens
1: as yeah. part of your business partnerships. Yeah. And these tokens are, are valuable because there's a limited, there's a limited amount of them. So if you want to be on the network, you need the tokens. And if, you, you know, if as a company, if you come on board early and you get a, a healthy allocation of tokens, you may never need to pay for KYC services for a long time because um, you know, you'll also be earning tokens when people are using the data of your existing customer base. So there's a strong incentive for early adopters with what we're doing right now
0: okay and then how does civic ex- itself make money mm-hmm. it seems like you're making money from the tokens but then are you taking cut kind of the transactions or
1: so we write smart contracts for these tokens and when you execute these smart contracts there'll be a, a percentage of the uh, of the of the token that goes to us
0: wait a percentage of the tokens yeah, so uh, if, if there's a transaction if
1: a transaction where one token was exchanged for an information exchange there may be a, a percentage of that token which would execute to our wallet as okay. part of the transaction.
0: Okay. Interesting. Um, so, one other thing that I was just curious about is you've been active in so many different ways in cryptocurrency, but why did you decide to focus on identity?
1: So, at my previous company, GIFT, we, we found that identity was a massive problem. People were using stolen credit cards, the fraudsters are <laughs> very difficult to, um, uh, to catch. Right, and the reason is because it's not really a card problem. Because you know the, the argument from the, from the card networks is that well, it's card not present, so you can't verify who the person is, and and so the merchant takes the charge back and he gets the hit, and that's really not, the issue is that we haven't really as a society solved, uh, person not present. How do you know, and how can you digitally confirm someone is who they say they are if they're not physically there? And we've gotten to the point now where, I mean, let's be honest, even if someone's physically there, we've had people walking to banks with a stolen driver's license and pretend to be someone else. I mean, it doesn't work, right? So we need a better solution. And so identity is one problem that hasn't been solved. I think the the blockchain is well suited to that, the Bitcoin blockchain and, and other um, blockchains potentially as well. We focus on the, on the Bitcoin blockchain. And one of the things that I think we feel strongly about in the company is we, the, the sort of bigger, greater mission is that you know, I'd like to see democracy change on Earth. I'd like to see us get a point where voting for a president is inclusive of everyone, not just people who can afford to take the day off and go vote. And, and I'm you know from South Africa. I grew up under apartheid. When Nelson Mandela was released, I, I witnessed how you know people would stand in line for days to go vote. And it's kind of crazy, right? So I come from a world where I was born without a vote. <laughs> and, and so as a mission, like, if I could give voting to the world, it would be amazing. If I could let people vote on their mobile phones in any part of the world where they are, like, if you're traveling while your elections are in a country, you can't really participate. There's a way of doing it, but it's really cumbersome. And voting's not secure. I mean, people, you know, elections get hacked. Good luck hacking the Bitcoin blockchain. (laughs) You know, so if we could get to the point where you could use um, tokens as a way of voting, uh, if you could use, you know, Bitcoins or any other crypto to vote, it would be very interesting because the results would tabulate in real time. You'd have, you know, You'd have results. You'd have guaranteed no double spend, guaranteed no double votes, etc. So, so that was like the uh, the origin for the company, uh, Civic. And then we thought about the problem more and more, and we realized to solve that problem, we actually have to solve identity first. And because when I spoke to lawmakers around voting, digital voting, sure the technology exists, and you can argue that current tech is pretty bad, um, and it's prone to hacking. And yeah, blockchain tech is, is great, but the the real issue isn't is that I think lawmakers just don't have faith in in the fact that um, identity is digitally secure and sound. And so they would not be willing for years. I mean, the one conversation I had with the state um, representative was that, yeah, well, we could probably get there in about eight to 10 years' time. And that's probably about right. Um, but in between now and then, you've got to get to the point where digital identity is actually solved, so then it becomes kind of a no-brainer to use uh, a way of digitally voting. Um, and so that's, that's kind of a long-term vision for the company.
0: Oh, interesting. And on the back end now, are you using Bitcoin or Ethereum or a private chain? Or? We're
1: using Bitcoin. We felt Bitcoin was the most secure um, and non-partisan type of coin out there. It's global. You know, it's in every country. The nodes are propagated everywhere. It's just, it's, you know, obviously there's a pending hard fork um, that, that may be coming soon. There's some other issues there. But we think that the long term, the security, and it's more the neutrality of Bitcoin, Kind of serves the purpose for voting, versus having, you know, you know. For example, we could go with Ethereum, but then you know, there, there actually are the, the personalities behind Ethereum, and there's a foundation, and and there's some form of centralization there. If you think about it. Um, whereas Bitcoin, I mean, you know, sure you have core developers, and you've got mining centralization, but largely, I think everyone realizes that Bitcoin is something which is just purely you know, it, it, the technology itself is neutral. So there's no argument from one government that you know that. that you know, it would not be, it can be taken over by another government necessarily. And I think we would have better an arms race if that happened because everyone sees Bitcoin as a global asset um, versus controlled by one person or persons uh, right now. I mean, you could argue otherwise, but I think to a large extent, I think it's pretty neutral.
0: A lot of these token launches are happening on Ethereum, but are you doing yours on Bitcoin?
1: So we'll be issuing a pre-token um, using Ethereum, so ERC 20 That's because the, the smart contract system is not ready and the marketplace is not ready. Obviously, we're we're uh, rolling that out now, but it'll be ready in about, I would say, conservatively, that's a Q1, um, and we expect to have it ready by then. But um, the reason we're doing that, we, the reason we, we're not using Necessarily using erc twenty going forward long term is that we've built on Bitcoin. So when we saw what um, RSK was doing and uh, with smart contracting and, and, and on Bitcoin, on, on Bitcoin, and, we, and, and because our systems are built on Bitcoin, it just makes more sense for us to use RSK and not have to try and you know, integrate into Ethereum and have a bridge between right. the two. The
0: RSK, when is that launching?
1: Well, they're already live on on testnet on the testnet right now, and it okay. uh, seems like everything's going well. So I think you know. In the next couple of months, we'll have something there, and then we'll test it. And as long as we feel that it's secure and and robust, we'll we'll roll it out with them. We should be the first, um, you know, token sale and that runs on RSK. Um, huh. But uh, you know, we we're confident that they can pull it off. But we, you know, for now, we're going to issue an ERC twenty token, and we'll we'll take it from there.
0: So, but one thing that you said was you're issuing a pre-token. I don't mm-hmm. know
1: what that means. So a pre-token is basically look, the token's not going to be functional in the sense that you can't really use it for the smart contracting because it hasn't been built in. We haven't written the smart contracts for the ERC-20 token, but you'll be able to, at the time, exchange that for the final token. And for some reason, if we decide to stay with the ERC-20 or there's some issues, we, we would basically use that token going forward. But we're pretty confident that the RSK team can execute and get us uh, um, ready in time to deploy with our platform. So we, we're expecting to be on an RSK and be the first. Okay. And I think it's also good for Bitcoin. I mean, I'm a big Bitcoin believer and supporter. Um, you know, I, I think Bitcoin is has um, got the power to change the world. And I, I'd, I'd love to see us doing smart contracts on the top of Bitcoin. I'd love to see us using Bitcoin for um, a variety of different use cases other than you know, money transfers and payments. And and I'd like to see us get there. So we're going to keep pushing on that. And if for some reason we hit a limitation and we just can't make it happen, sure, we'll use other, we'll use other technologies. But for now, I think Bitcoin can get there
0: so just a couple more things about this though like um, sometimes they say that if you launch a token you should um, do it when your network's already functional so that way it like reduces the chance you'll be um, your token won't be deemed a security um, but do you, do you feel like you're running that risk doing it this way?
1: Not at all I mean we, we most people are running token sales and ICOs right now on the back of a white paper with no tick and we spent two years building our platform nearly and uh, we've got all the infrastructure up and running, we've got the verification processes, it works, it functions. And so the last part is really writing the smart contracts and integrating it into the back end. So I'd say that the platform is nearly ready, um, a few more months to ago. Uh, so I don't think that there's, you know, what we're really selling right now is a product. It's a, you know, you can use the product today. And so we're selling network access to the, the product where you can start uh, monetizing your customer data. And earning revenue from it, and so that network access is what we we're, we're packaging as a token, and we're selling. So we've also been very, um, I'd say, circumspect about how we do uh, a token sale versus every every other um, you know, sell out there. And a lot of people have set up offshore companies and foundations and you know Virgin Island trusts and whatever. All this fancy, you know, tax structuring, you know, mess. Um, we've thought about this very long and hard. We've spoken to our attorneys, Perkins crew have been advising us really well in the process and uh, working with Deloitte as well. And, yeah, we could have done all that. We could have gone through this and maybe it would have been okay from a, a legal perspective. Maybe we could have, you know, saved a whole bunch of money on taxes. But the reality is we're not some sketchy offshore uh, company trying to take, you know, you know money and hide it from taxes and do all sorts of fancy stuff we're actually just building building cool tech and we think that we can change the world and so at the end of the day we decided to keep it as what we are a venture capital funded delaware c corporation with the board with you know all the structures done this before we're going to pay the taxes as we as we need to the money flows into the company into the u.s it's regulated from a you know, the, the, it's, we're a US company and uh, we're based in Palo Alto. Uh, what you see is what you get. We're not going to do anything fancy or, or, or crazy, um, and and in doing so, we think you know we're going to walk the straight and narrow line. And you know maybe we don't save as much or we don't raise as much or whatever it is. But um, you know it's 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 more important that we do it the right way. We think.
0: Okay, and um, I also wanted to ask you, why. why did you not go for VC funding this time? I, I totally understand the mm-hmm. function of the token and all that, but like I know you know, initially you were VC funded.
1: Well, we are. We are VC funded. We...
0: Okay, right. But then now you're choosing to raise money another way. Why did you go that route?
1: So we've raised uh, you know, $5.75 million in funding so far. We actually haven't announced all of it, but you know, um, it's, I think it should be public by now. And so we've raised that much money. It's it's a good, healthy amount of money for to get a company to the point where you've got a product launch ready. It's a very difficult building tech in our space because, remember, we're dealing with a lot of regulation with regards to identity, consumer information, data. We have to re-architect it. Mean, we've had to re-architect it so we can effectively store everyone's in the world's information on their own devices. And this is a lot of security that goes into that and a lot of thought and, and, and tech and seconds us a while to build it. So, uh, when it came to the next stage, well, we could go raise money from a VC, and let's say we go and raise some money from a VC. What does a VC do for our business, if you think about it? This is a grassroots-level, community-driven thing. I mean, we need lots of small developers, meme developers, uh, cryptocurrency players, um, exchanges, etc., cetera, uh, playing with us. And we need to figure out a way to get these guys incentivized to move to a better, more secure system, because money in the bank itself isn't going to get us there. I mean, you've got to get the community to support this. People need to see this as a better way of logging into websites, protecting data privacy and security. And so, you know, also speaking of VCs, you know, as I do in Silicon Valley, up until a month ago, two months ago, Bitcoin, blockchain, it died. I mean, they treated it like 1999, right? Well, 2000, the big bubble crashed. And they had paid no attention to it. So I spend most of my time in VC meetings educating these guys and having them to bring in more people to educate. And then at the end of the day... I don't think they quite get it, and now they, you know, on a treadmill trying to catch up and figure out what's going on in this ICO space, and and it, it's sad, but it's taken, you know, this is years of experience that people in the crypto community have had understanding this and how it works, and, and now our VCs are trying to play catch up, and so, you know, uh, I'd rather take I'd rather take um, a view that working with the community and building something which everybody benefits from. Um, and people who understand it, so we're targeting the crypto community first will become the early adopters. and that would basically then encourage mass market adoption over time because people understand why this is important and the value. And it's always just better to have you know hundreds of thousands of people who are part of a network versus one VC
0: this is such an interesting conversation, but we're going to take a break just for a second for an important word from our sponsor, OnRamp. And then we'll talk more about your background before Civic. And also we'll talk more about Bitcoin and crypto in general. With so many companies vying for people's attention now, it's important to stand up from the pack. If you're looking to become a go-to brand that lingers in consumers' minds, check out OnRamp, a full-service creative agency that helps its clients maximize brand awareness, gain market momentum, and accelerate growth. OnRamp has helped numerous companies do everything from create their branding and identity to redesign their existing website to draw more traffic. Plus, they've helped blockchain startups and projects. Whether you're launching your brand or repositioning an existing organization, or just want to freshen your company's look, OnRamp can come up with a tailored design project or a strategic marketing plan that ensures your firm's lead in the market. Learn more and see examples of its work at thinkonramp.com. I'm talking with Vinny Lingham, CEO and co-founder of Civic. So let's go into your background. How did you get in Bitcoin?
1: So when I was running S- uh, Gift, uh, my previous company, and we launched in late 2012, we got hit by a ton of credit card fraud. I mean, thousands of dollars. And in some days, like five grand a day from you know uh, people overseas and, and whatnot. And it was tough, because you're a startup and you have a very tight budget. We hadn't raised that much capital, and so we were had to figure out how do we get past all this fraud and how do we, because the more we turn the fraud filters up, the more the less sales we had and the more problems we, we would have with customer support. So it was a fine line trying to balance and making sure chargebacks were not a big issue. And then around January or February of 2012, I think it was January, I started chatting to a friend of mine, one of our you know, advisors, and he was chatting to me about Bitcoin. And I kind of heard about it before when I dismissed it, the usual cycle. And the price is back up again. I was like, okay, let me go buy some. So I wound up buying some coins from Wences. <laughs> you know, patient Zero for Bitcoin in Silicon Valley. That's
0: Wences Casares, CEO of Zappo.
1: Yep. And this is back in 2012. And I know I Wences for, for many years because I was part of Endeavor, um, the Entrepreneur Foundation uh, organization. And so, you know, Wences was, you know, if you know Wences, he's, uh, he was always on, on fire about Bitcoin. and. and yeah, I watched the the run up to 255 bucks, and watched it crash down to like 50. Um, it was this was very exciting and interesting time I did a bit, a bit of trading. Made some money, lost some money, kind of broke even in the end. Um, and uh, but I was I was hooked. Like this is going to be the next big thing, and I decided to plug um, Bitcoin into Gift. And so we worked with Tony Gallippi from uh, BitPay, and we integrated. And uh, my developers thought I was crazy. My VC thought I was nuts. And uh, I even had bets. One of my developers that we would have more than a thousand dollars in sales in the first day. And he he didn't believe it. So I got I won a bottle of wine from him. But uh, we did. I mean, we, we broke a thousand bucks in the first day. And eventually, we we're doing hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, and eventually millions a month uh, in, in wow. Bitcoin sales. And so you know, when we sold the company to First Data. Um, we had grown the business tremendously on the back of Bitcoin, but we already we started seeing, you know, more payments through credit cards and PayPal. And this we took something which is really, but GIFT was really a crypto community-focused product and it, we took it mainstream. So in the end, you know, uh, GIFT probably was doing less than 10% of its total volume on Bitcoin. In the beginning, it was doing 95%. Oh, but wow. that helped us get all the merchants on board because we had volume, whereas we wouldn't have had volume just on the credit cards. And so... So, Bitcoin was instrumental, actually, in getting gift um, from a niche audience to the mainstream audience, where now it's, you know, like probably the biggest uh, online gift card site.
0: Wait, so I, I'm so confused by that. Like, 95% of the gift cards being bought on gift were being paid for with Bitcoin?
1: Initially, because we were just targeting the Bitcoin community, right? So, oh, oh. so, we had everyone from the Bitcoin community coming in, using us, and, and it was a way of you know, using spending your bitcoins and going shopping and buying stuff at, you know, all the great stores that we had. And it helped us attract more stores because we had this you know, I'd rather have like ten thousand like super loyal, excited, happy customers than millions of people who don't really do much. And so the the thing about the crypto community is they're very um passionate. And so when they see a great service, they tell their friends, they get involved. And that's kinda of why we're doing the same thing with Civic. We want the community to get involved. I want you know, a million crypto you know, enthusiasts understand the technology and how we're pro- protecting their privacy and their data, telling their friends about it and, t- and taking the product mainstream. So that's why I'm kind of using the lessons I learned from GIFT in Civic and engaging in the, the, the community on this.
0: And people basically were, they were holding Bitcoin and they couldn't, like, spend it at Amazon. So what they were doing, or I, I don't know, who were some of your I, I mean, Amazon, Starbucks,
1: retailers? Target, we have, all, we have all these big retailers still do. And when I say we, um, GIFT does.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. And so since they wanted to shop at those yeah. stores, but they couldn't spend... Oh, I see. Yeah. Wow.
1: So, so we opened up 55,000 retail locations to anyone who held a Bitcoin, really, back in the days. So you could go to any of the stores, download the gift app, buy a gift card, and we would have zero fraud.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, right. And no
1: chargebacks. And no chargebacks. And so we were very happy to take the money, and our margins were much higher. And then we introduced loyalty points, which incentivized the network even more. And so we built a network effect around that. So we're kind of doing the same thing with tokens, in um, Civic, we're giving tokens to reward users and uh partners and making everyone feel part of the network and so engaging the crypto community with something which they've come to with, so so tokens and um and that's why we're doing the token sale. So this is this is a natural evolution of what we what I learned at, at Gift and applying to Civic and, and already within, you know, just announcing the platform and getting it out there, the response has been phenomenal. <laughs>
0: So let's, let's talk more generally about Bitcoin sure. and, and crypto. Um, I want to talk about your reputation as the Bitcoin price oracle. How did you get into the business of Bitcoin price prediction?
1: Well, I never did the business of price prediction. I kind of got dragged into that part. I mean, I was in the business of giving fundamentals and, and talking about fundamentals and advice. So when I said at the Coin Summit conference in 2014, Bitcoin had, had gone up and I, I was watching the data from the back end of GIFs and I could see when people spend when they don't spend based upon the price and so I had a lot of insights that I'd I from how consumer behavior followed the price and so when I sat down at this conference I think it was March um, March or April of 2014 everyone was like punch drunk like they were oh Bitcoin was like 800 bucks or whatever it is 700, 800 bucks and they all thought it was going to go to 2000 that year like I asked the whole room and everyone said 2000 and the funny thing is like a year before that, I was at the San Jose Bitcoin conference where Bitcoin was 100 bucks or something, and and everyone thought it's not going to go up that much. And I said a thousand, so we hit a thousand the previous year, and I kind of got the wow, Vinny, how'd you know? And then I said, okay, well it's going to go down, and it's going to go sideways for a long time until these issues resolve and I pointed out I wrote a blog post about the fundamentals of people spending the money uh, merchant adoption, lack of on-ramps for Bitcoin etc You know, lack of fear to buy Bitcoin etc and so I was able to make predictions based upon market fundamentals which I understand which I communicated in my blog post and then about 12 to 18 months later Bitcoin kind of uh, bottomed down to the 200s or right around there and then it started climbing back up again and then I felt that Okay, the fundamentals change again. So I wrote another blog post called Bitcoin Awakens and that was about a year ago at about the four hundred and fifty mark. And I said all the reasons why I think Bitcoin will go to, you know, um over a thousand bucks, you know, in two thousand and sixteen and basically hit there I think within a couple of hours of spare, depending on which exchange you look at, it was like by New Year's Eve, a thousand bucks. And and, you know, along the way, just my tweets, like I was able to call certain, you know, False runs of Bitcoin getting started and, and whatnot, and having fun with Ryan Sulkis and you know because they all thought, oh, this is the next big run, and I was like, no, it's not. And um and you know sp- I spoke about the halving and how the eff- effect that would have and how we would go sideways for a while again. So I've made a number of good predictions of Bitcoin. The one prediction which which I made, which I, people kind of you know um, hold me to, is the fact that at twelve fifty uh, at the ETF announcement, I said, look, the ETF is not going to happen, which it didn't. And I said, the price is going to tank, and it may not recover very quickly. And I, I had a price target. I said, look, I mean, it's just a target. It's like, look, on the upside, I think Bitcoin goes to, you know, 2,000 or whatever the number was if ETFs approve. But if it doesn't, it's going to tank to like 850. And it dropped down to 880. And I actually thought it would go below 850. I think it's maybe, it might even stay there. But my, 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 my prediction was 850. And I get, so much, I get so much shit for not hitting the 850 number. Like, people don't understand. Like, that was more directional. It was like, hey, it's gonna go. The fact that it broke nine hundred went down is like pretty, pretty yeah, close. But um, to
0: my mind, 850 and 880, that's fine.
1: That's yeah, like, exactly. So then I get enough. a lot, I get a lot of crap on on Twitter. I started just muting people because like, Twitter is not a place for debate.
0: Oh yeah, no, <laughs> it's not. I, I like to read the threads, yeah. but like, I try not to engage too much. Um, but wait, so I want to ask, like, you know, when you were saying that you felt like the market fundamentals didn't weren't mm-hmm. there in twenty fourteen, but then things changed. Um, so what are some of the things that did change? About was it again? I guess a year ago like what what did you see then that you felt like was gonna enable the price to rise
1: well I definitely felt that the hobbing coming up would have an impact um I felt which was
0: like just about a year ago yeah. it was like well, it 11 was months Ju- ago or something July last year oh July
1: okay yeah so about a year ago I, that would have an impact on create a spike um there were, uh, I mean, there were just a number of other things like, you know, global markets instability. stability. I wrote about currency, commodity, Bitcoin as a store of value. The one thing I did, I've said to people, is that Bitcoin moves up too fast, it's going to create bubbles and crashes. And people don't want to listen, so we're going to be in that phase again. So um, so is that
0: what you think is going on
1: now? Well, I, first of all, I think that the, I did not expect Bitcoin to go over you know The 1250 1300 mark, and if it did, I knew it would run because that's typically what Bitcoin does. Um, In with, way,
0: and you didn't think it wouldn't go I did go past, past 1300
1: this year. Well, until the scaling issue is resolved and the hard oh. focus results, so that's why okay. I, I didn't believe that. And I also believe that by you know the price being kept lower, that we'd have a quicker resolution on, on, on the on the um scaling debate because at some point it's not profitable to keep mining. So I had a whole you know a little bit of a I went on on a limb on that one, um, but what all, but all that happened essentially was the price kept rising and people don't care about the the technical fundamentals of Bitcoin, and so now we in a situation where transactions below 100 bucks don't make any sense uh, because the, the fees and you know and and the it's not in a healthy situation. Everyone knows that. So then the alts are coming in and people are running that, and I I, so I don't like to see that. And even though Bitcoin might you know probably double 1250. I mean I, I publicly sold at 1250 because I felt that was a, a short-term you know, cap, um, we've had a run. And the reasons for the run, I'm not so sure, are necessarily sustainable. But what it did do is it, it, it brought confidence back into the market and the broader markets. So and now you have people who have no idea what Bitcoin is, buying Bitcoin. And, well, I've seen this story play out before. And we'll see how high it goes before it comes back down again.
0: Um, I, and so where do you think this investment is coming from? From people who don't really know what's yeah. going on?
1: Yeah, I think it's from... Uh, and who are they? Well, I mean, I've had tons of friends contact me. They they wouldn't know a Bitcoin from an Ether. <laughs> like, like they have no idea what they're doing. And they finish up by it. I'm like, I'm, I'm not giving people advice anymore. I'm just going to sit back and, and and see what happens. And look, the way I look at it is, I've always been a level-headed, reasonable person through the years. And when things are, like, out of whack on the downside, people think I'm crazy. Like, Bitcoin, a thousand bucks, are you nuts? Bitcoin going up 3X, are you nuts? And everyone's got different personal risk and, and, and uh, personal risk and, and appetite. So... When it comes to personal risk and appetite, I mean, I had a, a ton of my net worth, you know, double digits sitting in Bitcoin at twelve fifty, and I just didn't feel comfortable with the way the world was, and I reduced my holding significantly. I have, you know, um, I, I sold like 90% of my coins, but I, what I have left is still a decent amount of money. But for my personal risk appetite, and now it's effectively doubled, so 20% whatever it is, um, you know, it's a it's a decent amount of money, and I'm happy to support Bitcoin, but I wasn't comfortable with the, with the price given the risk. And if you look at, again, The reasons for the run, some of the fundamentals, you've got fiat that can't go into exchanges, you've got, you know, all-time, I mean, right now, and I think Bitfinex, 360% a year interest to to lend dollars to people who are going long on Bitcoin. Mm. I mean, at some point, this stuff, I I saw this happen in 2013 as well, and... And it happens, and the stuff unwinds. And so it's kind of like musical chairs. And the music stops. If you don't have a chair, you're going to be, you know, So, so you think over. the bubble's going to pop this year, and, and what's going to
0: happen? It may
1: never pop. I mean, it, it may it, it may never pop. The reality is that markets will stay, can stay irrational for a long period of time. Look at look at the traditional financial markets. You've got bonds, which are in a bubble. You've got – there's a lot of – I mean, with capitals cheap worldwide, everything gets inflated. I mean, people in Japan can borrow yen for zero – interest and go buy Bitcoin. So what's going to happen? The price keeps going up. Um, The velocity of price increase is more my concern. The faster it goes up, uh, the faster it can come down. And the other thing which people forget is that when new money comes into the system, these aren't long-term holders. they are people coming in to speculate. They're selling their houses. I'm seeing these stories again, just like we did four years ago. And they're putting all their money into Bitcoin. Really? Yep. And what happens when the price drops 20%? Well, then it drops another 20 or 30% because people panic sell the market because they're holding too much. Now they they can't service their debt. Like, this stuff always ends badly. And so when you look at the market right now, I'm just... I'm biting my tongue. I'm, you know, kind of like half-joking. Um, <laughs> like, I bought one Ether at 185 bucks because, like... I told the guy next to me, if I buy one at that price, it's going to tank, right? <laughs> it kind of went down. A bit of a joke. I think well, it's now backup. it's up again. Now it's up again. And the market's just irrational, just well. largely irrational across the board, right? The, like like Dogecoin's worth $350 million or something right now. Right. So so this there's... there's this is, everyone who kind of knows has been around for a while and knows that this is an irrational market. Doesn't mean you can't make money. I think the, problem, the biggest mistake you make is shorting an irrational market. that 's a bad idea. So I'm not shorting. I'm not you know, going long. I'm, not, I'm just sitting back and waiting to see what happens. I think there's a lot of good crypto projects out there right now. Mm-hmm. And these projects will deliver real value. But there's a lot of noise and if you can't see the noise from the signals, you're going to lose some money and that's the way it is. And I think people need to learn lessons as well. So instead of me trying to tell people, hey, there's a bubble, watch out, I kind of sit back and just to see what happens. And again, I could be totally wrong. I just I.
0: So you, but you think there's going to be a correction? What would like if? So right now, um, Bitcoin is above two thousand dollars, like twenty five hundred. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what would what what do you think would be like a more reasonable price? And kind of like what market fundamentals do you look at to kind of gauge what the value should be? Like, and also what risks do you see right now?
1: It's not a price issue. It's a. Velocity of value increase. It's like it's the quality of money going into the system versus the I mean, we, No one can argue a lot of money's coming into, into crypto in the past couple of months. It's the quality of money. Are these people long term or are they just speculators running it up? Are they. Well, but what
0: about like things like the potential hard fork? I mean, do That's, you...
1: that's the issue. People putting money in, they don't understand this stuff. And so you've got people, even Bitcoin who do understand it, who say, well, a hard fork will be fine. The reality is that even an 80% hard fork is a contentious hard fork. Then you're going to have a split. And then you're going to have Roger who owns Bitcoin.com and BTC.com or whatever else. And then you're going to have two different flavors of Bitcoin. Oh, all of a sudden, the whole thesis of Bitcoin only has 21 million units. Well, that's probably 42 million. Actually, no, it's 63 million because now there's three chains. Like, this is another conversation that you can have with um, with man on the street who just sees the price going up wants to buy bitcoins, right. so th- this is stuff where bitcoin can go up to five thousand from where it is today. It can double. It can triple. The faster it happens, the more likely it's going to crash.
0: So, and what are the odds? Do you think of a of a split in bitcoin where we end up with two coins or three coins?
1: Much higher than the market's pricing in.
0: Okay, you do, so you,
1: but you don't want to name odds? No, I, I, I don't think it's up to I, – I, I've, I've written blog posts about this. I've said my piece. I try to – I'll always be known as the guy who tried to prevent the bubble, and I failed, clearly, because it's going to happen. And uh, I think it's part of the learning cycle. We have to go through these bubbles. I don't think one man can prevent the market from being irrational. Uh, and if the bubble never bursts, then that's great. I'm happy for Bitcoin. I have Bitcoins. I'm, I'm not going to be complaining about it. Um, but – Again, I try to be rational. And,
0: and Okay, so <laughs> do you think that the odds of a split are more than 50%? or this Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Oh, wow. And so if Bitcoin does split, which chain do you think will take the greater market share or be considered the real Bitcoin?
1: That one is a very difficult one. That's very... Because it... When you say consider the real Bitcoin, by what? By the market, by the price, based on market cap, based upon oh, what? What fundamentals? The majority of people in the whole world—people in China, people in Japan, people in Korea, people in the US. Yeah,
0: I guess. So how
1: do you how do you average it out? Everybody, everyone. Um, well, BidPay themselves have said they'd mind they would basically have to run you know, two Bitcoins at that point, They'll operate on both chains permanently though. Well, for a while they would be operating in both chains it's kind of scary right so from, from some of the cons- consumer tech background when you go and buy one bitcoin you got a gift and you want to spend the coins there and now they, you get told that oh you have the wrong bitcoin this is just not good for business it's not good for either bitcoin um a contentious hard fork is the, the biggest problem we've got right now and that was my biggest concern and i think that it's going to happen and uh, the market's not pricing it in, and so the moment the market gets spooked that this is actually going to happen, and the moment it gets closer to actually happening, the more we are going to see the bubble, you know, deflate a bit, okay. maybe temporarily, maybe for a while. Um, I don't know. It's uh, again, I'm, I never gave myself the oracle name. People call me the oracle. Uh, it's kind of funny. It's like again, I, I like to be pretty even, even um, keeled about these things. So when sentiment's low, I'm, you know, I look like I'm positive. And when sentiment's high, I look like I'm negative. And it's right. all perspective thing, right? So, let's see. Like, I want to see us get through this year without a, without a contentious hard fork. And if we do, then I've been totally wrong about everything I'm saying. And if we do, if we do have a contentious hard fork this year, um, then people need to realize that, again, I was the guy who tried to stop this, but no one listened. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, let's talk more generally also about that ICO trend. Um, You kind of like made a few remarks earlier um, that sort of give a hint what you think, but so what would you say is your overall opinion of what's going on right now?
1: Well, look, I think there's a number of it's like the dot com days in a sense, right? There's this new thing, people don't quite understand it, everyone wants a piece of it. It's like, you know, they're seeing their, their friends do it and whatever. Um, the dot-com bubble and burst was really bad for a lot of people in a short space of time, but really good for the majority of the world for a long period of time. And so you've got to kind of take the good or the bad. And so when I look at it as, as, I mean, Google raised 25 million bucks during the dot-com mania, and we have Google today, thankfully, for a lot of things, right? And so um, I think that you will get some companies and some organizations that leverage it well and uh, and are able to use this current, call it, environment to build amazing services for the world and make a difference long-term. And those will more than pay back all the losses and whatever else. But you can get people who are, just like .com days, got scammed. Scammed, and you're going to have these crazy parties that these companies throw and... You know in Vegas and burning five million dollars in launch parties like you can have all that crazy stuff happening potentially um, you also have the problem that people think that because cryptography and technologies are now distributed around the world that the culture is the same around the world around building companies and building organizations it's not and so the discipline around building tech companies um, differs from market to market and how people spend money how they behave how they act how they hire how they fire how they Build these services now. I think we're a lot more aligned now than we were 20 years ago in terms of the differences between cultures. But these cultures, there are cultural differences across countries. I mean, I'm, you know, South African, I have investments South in Africa, and the culture is different there to the US. So I am not, know, I'm not saying see what bad. you're
0: saying there. You're saying that because of that, for that reason, then the ICOs in different places are some are going to be more scammy, or uh, is that what you're saying? Potentially, yeah. Okay.
1: And yeah. look at the culture in Silicon Valley. You know, if founders go out and buy a Ferrari and. Drive around in the streets. I mean, they, we all—I'm not going to point out examples, but they get hit pretty hard, right? So you don't do that in Silicon Valley. You don't go buy a Ferrari after you get funding, or or have a you know a, you, a lot, People walk around in you know sneakers and and t-shirts. They're a lot more understated, and so it really is about the wealth there. But there are other parts of the world where you know it's like founders will go buy Ferraris, and they you know the culture is to go and you know. Um, it's less intellectual and I'm not saying it's everywhere and I'm not saying every company is the same but there are certain cultures that it's not about the it's not about the good you do in the world the technology you do in the world it's about um, you <laughs> as a yeah. founder and, and your you know if you're single the, the car you drive and the house you have and all the, the playboy mm-hmm. lifestyle and I see this as I travel around the world and I look at investments and I look at the people behind it and so the problem with that is that a lot of people around the world are really good at marketing and selling, and not as good as technology. And I must say again, not saying Silicon Valley has the, the 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 monopoly on this. I mean, you've got great companies in every part of the world. But the moment you pull out the bad elements out of certain cultures, don't expect the money to be spent well.
0: Okay, and also, so what are some of the things going on in the ICOs right now where, like, you look at that and you're like, I wish people would stop that. What are what are some of those things?
1: Well, first of all, founders taking money off the table and through a, through a token sale and ICOs, is just nuts. Like, teams want to take that. That's just, like, I, I heard a story about that yesterday and I haven't confirmed it and that's the case and now we're ready. Like, that's and, and by
0: that, you mean, like, not putting some of it, it just, like, immediately?
1: Yeah, yeah, in, into their pockets. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so that for me isn't that's a red flag straight away I think uh, the notion of uncapped um, token offerings is a bad idea as well Um, I think that sends the wrong signal Um, I think the the Dutch auction system was bad I think in my opinion but markets kind of rewarded genosis on that so so be it Um, yeah, I think it's about being fair. I think about... Like, you have to create the value for everyone in the network. And so it depends. Like, our goal is to create a network and make sure everyone benefits from the network in in, in you know in many ways. Um, I don't think everyone else has the same sort of ambition. So some people... This is a get-rich-quick scheme. Some people, basically, because they're outside the US, they can, they can do these ICOs under other, other jurisdictions, and they can take the money and run. And there's nothing you can really do about it. Um, and so the people... And the team and the quality of the work and the track record is very important to me. Not to say that people with no track record should be discarded. I mean, the quality of the work. But I think it's... it's it's you you got to find... The, I mean, I think people go from one end to the other. They go from the, the end of, well, if it's a venture-backed company, it must be great. Too. If it's not venture-backed, it must be crap. Okay? And I think there's a middle ground here. And there's a middle ground where just because a team isn't venture-backed or... Or, or, or necessarily have experience that they couldn't be building something amazing, but they there should be some governance structure in place. Some, you know, besides those two guys in a room, who's on their team? Do they have some advisors? Do they have a board member? Do they have someone who is going to, you know, look over them and and, and help them? Um, is there some pedigree? And and sometimes you can just argue, well, it doesn't matter. But when you're building companies and you're building technology companies and startups and you're working with people and you're hiring and the way you treat your people is important. The way you build the culture is important. The way you you try to be non, non-racist, non non-prejudicial, like equal opportunity for women, all these things. I think it's important. I think you, you, can't, you can't operate in today's society with the same biases that we've had in the past. And you've got to be a bit more forward-thinking. And sometimes the technologists who sit in the room come up with this stuff. They don't know how to operate these organizations and these businesses. And so you, you, you get the situation where And it's changing now. I mean, Bitcoin's been largely male-dominated. Now... That I don't think it's entirely the, the technology's fault. I think it's just the a, a nature of the the people who were into crypto or whatever else and and this technology cycle were largely, you know largely male for whatever reasons they call it education. Well, society. Society, uh, education. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So
0: it shapes boys into, you know, techie exactly. financial types and girls into not. So Exactly.
1: Yeah. So but so you can't blame the people necessarily, but then it's also Upon us to try and bring in diversity into organisations, so we can't say, "Well, because society created this problem where it's heavily slanted to one, towards one group, that we can't fix it." Yeah, and so, so, so I think that's so. Again, culture is important, and I think when you're backing a team and you don't know about their views on culture and and and, and what they're doing, like I, I like to look at capital as something which, like, I call a conscious capital. So if I invest in something, I kind of want to believe in the team. I want to believe in what their vision is, their values. These are important things to me. Like, do I want to invest in a team that is, well, I mean, would I invest in a team that's racist? No. <laughs> would I invest in a team that's uh, prejudicial towards a, a certain group? No. Like, so why don't we find these facts out? And the only way you do is, like, by getting to know the people and understanding their, their, their vision what they see and, how, and their values. And I think it's, it's a lot easier to align values when you know people versus when you're just reading a white paper
0: oh well, wow. so that means that it, it must be pretty difficult to invest in an ICO
1: then I think it is and I yeah. think it's again it's it's sometimes it's investing sometimes it's buying tokens like you, you can it's certain tokens you can easily buy because of what it is and right. it's not really linked to the culture of the company and it's a distributed model lots of developers you just open. want to use the service people want exactly so there's lots of reasons for it but I think I, I look at this as a, as a startup investor. I've done a ton of investing. I've done Shark Tank. Right. Like in, 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 On Shark Tank, if I don't get a sense that the people, I've got a, a, a cultural alignment with my values, I don't invest.
0: Okay. Yeah, I actually – so we don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to ask you a few sure. remaining questions. So one of them is about Shark Tank. How did you get on that, and how has that experience been
1: for you? So, yeah, that was a great experience. I, I, I was invited to be on Dragon's Den which is like the UK and Canadian version of Shark Tank, okay. um, three years ago in South Africa. I, I went on it, it was, it, was, it was a great experience. And then Sony owns the rights to Dragon's End, so they brought out Shark Tank in South Africa, and uh, myself and the other Dragon were selected to be Sharks as well, so it was it was great. I, Shark Tank's one of my favorite TV shows. In the U.S. and I'll be watching it for years, so I, I really enjoyed it. I sit in Mark Cuban's seat, <laughs> nice. and I get to see all these South African pitch um, ideas. And one of the deals we did was Augmentos, which was on the show. And these guys came and they were trying to like figure out how to monetize this thing. And, build. and I was like, guys, why don't you just use like the blockchain? And why don't you create the, the rarity of these items? And and so they didn't. They did an ICO and uh, they sold a million dollars worth of tokens. And now it's I mean literally up like the the data up twenty x. Oh, wow. And so, with, I mean, again, the market's frothy to say the right. least. So everything's up twenty x. But, right. um, but it was interesting that we were able to take something on Shark Tank. We did the first. I did the first ever Bitcoin deal on Shark Tank. That's um, great. And I was wearing my Bitcoin socks at the time as well. Oh,
0: nice! <laughs> and All so right.
1: it, was, it was a good experience, and uh, again, met some interesting people.
0: What other projects and tokens are you interested in?
1: I actually never. I, I mean, Shark Tank. I kind of had to talk about Debits and. and whatever else because it was a TV show broadcast I couldn't hide the fact that I was behind it Um, but I actually never talk about what I like and what I don't like uh, publicly because I I do have a large audience on Twitter and a a large following so if I say XYZ coin is going to be big the the price will just move and people will buy because I said so and I just don't want to be responsible for that. So I've largely limited my commentary to Bitcoin because it's, I can't move the Bitcoin price. Trust price. me. No matter what I say, it's not going to move the Bitcoin price. Uh, try as I might. <laughs> right. um, so I, I limited Bitcoin and actually Ethereum and, and a little bit. I know less, I mean, I, I'm less fair with Ethereum than I am always with Bitcoin. Yeah, well,
0: I wanted to get, what's your take
1: on Ethereum? I, I don't like the unlimited supply. The, the numbers on not for me. I know they're trying to move to proof of stake, but I mean, when it comes, we can have a look at what the supply looks like then. Um, I'm not sure why, if you do the math, that we need so much ethereum out there um, in terms of, at that price, and so mm. I'm still trying to get my head around that, so I don't know it looks published to me it looks extremely published to me, but again I could be wrong i'm i'm <laughs> yeah it's it's, it's it's hard to call it top as well you just have no idea i mean uh, if there's irrational demand for a certain item then it'll go up in price it's one of those things and at the end of the day it needs to be used in the real world and Ethereum is a, is, is arguably a better technology it's um, you know it's got kind of a different use case to Bitcoin I think I think Bitcoin is a real long term store of value I think Ethereum is a, a, a more of a, call it a settlement layer smart contracts it's very closer to what we're trying to do with, with Civic um, so I respect Ethereum and it's again Price and value are always two things which people don't understand. Like, the, I don't hate Ethereum. I'm just so sure so that the price is aligned with the value,
0: okay. long term. Do you have any price predictions for Bitcoin by the end of the year?
1: My price prediction for end of this year was 3000 bucks. Okay. And I did say we should get there as slowly as possible. Okay. No one cares. Yeah,
0: we'll, <laughs> so, we'll be there in like a day.
1: <laughs> we'll um, see, but yeah. that was the prediction I made last year. And so I think my annual predictions have been spot on for four years now. So okay. we're, we're pretty good. <laughs>
0: well, we'll check back in and see how you did. Um, okay, well, where can people learn more about your work and get in touch with you?
1: Uh, com is my blog. I, write, I do a lot of blogging there. I'm an, at VinnieLingham on Twitter. And then civic.com is my company. So uh, check it out if you're a developer get hold of us. we will love to figure out how to get you some tokens and how to get you up and running. Um, and if you're a user, download Civic, we're going to be giving users tokens as well as part of the as part of the distribution. So yeah, just uh, try it out and tell people about it and use it and, and give us feedback and tell us how to make it better and how we can better protect your data.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Laura. Thanks everyone for joining us today. Before you switch off this podcast, don't forget, go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchanged to give me your feedback. If you're interested in learning more about Vinny, check out the show notes, which are available on my Forbes page, forbes.com slash sites slash Laura Shin. Unchained comes out every other Tuesday. Please share the podcast with friends and on social media. And remember to review, rate, and subscribe to it in iTunes or your preferred platform. Thanks again for listening.